All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, first of all, there will be a meeting for all those involved in prep school, training age, prep school, curriculum writing, whatever it may be, on uh, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, building C? Six. I knew it started with an S sound. Uh, building six. Uh, right, I think that's a building over here where we have prayer meeting. Okay. And then, and I just get uh, real excited about this. When, when you've got a small church, and this is something I know that's, that's new for everybody here, getting a new church started, and, and people need to come out of the woodwork to, with their own talents and spiritual gifts and abilities to volunteer to do things. And it's great when we have that, that happen. And uh, Dick, I mentioned the other night that Dick Mills uh, volunteered to put together a some sort of singing group that can do special music on occasion so that uh, he's got a sign-up sheet down here on the table. And if you're interested and you have a voice that uh, people would uh, not uh, grate their fingernails over hearing, then uh, sign up. And this is a great opportunity to just expand different elements of, of ministry and church life. Okay, before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to uh, talk to the Lord about uh, anything that you need to talk to Him about, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your grace toward us, especially the unmerited, magnificent grace that's exhibited at the cross, which is the benchmark definition of grace and love. Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us through the cross in terms of our positional spiritual assets as well as the experiential assets that you provide through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit this evening, we would be responsive to his teaching in each of our lives as he takes the truths that we study and personally applies them to each one of our, our lives. Father, we pray that we would have the courage and the willingness to accept the challenge that he presents to each one of us and put these things into practice on a consistent basis. And Father, we ask that you guide and direct our thinking this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We continue our study of Abraham, and as we look at Abraham, who is Abram still at this point, we understand that in the course of his life, as you look at the New Testament, how the New Testament interprets For us, the life of Abraham, there's several key doctrinal points that are brought out in the New Testament. Abram is a picture of the doctrine of justification by faith, which is what we'll get into when we come to Genesis chapter 15. He is also utilized in the New Testament in in James chapter 2, verses 20 and following, as a picture of justification before man in terms of the vindication uh, that comes as a result of our own spiritual growth to spiritual maturity. So we have Abram as a picture of justification, phase one. We see him as a picture of 
what happens at the culmination of that spiritual maturation process. He is also a picture of how you get from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, that process of growth. And this is indicated in uh, the way he is he's utilized in Hebrews chapter 11. The Abrahamic covenant is also foundational for understanding what God is doing in history with relationship to Israel, even today, uh, what God is doing in relationship to Israel, because there ultimately will be a fulfillment of all those Abrahamic covenant promises that take place at the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Abraham is also, uh, or the Abrahamic covenant is also the foundation and the starting point of what we now call world missions or missions because it is through the seed of Abraham that all nations will be blessed. And so we see that there is an Old Testament missions uh, emphasis that is changed when we get into the New Testament. The Old Testament, the world came to Israel to get the message of the gospel in the Old Testament. And as caravanners, as uh, travelers would come through the, the crossroads of the Middle East, which was right there in the, the land that God gave to Abraham, they would see this unique people, if that is, if they were in obedience to the Mosaic Law, this would be the foundation. And so they would, that was the idea, that they would come through Israel and see a nation where there was freedom. They would see a nation that was worshiping one God. They would see a nation whose whole culture was radically different from the culture that they had in uh, the Hittite Empire or Syrian Empire or Babylon or Acadia or down in Egypt or wherever they might be from, and then they would hear the gospel in Israel and take it back with them. So it was a, uh, a, a there was a central missionary uh, point, which was the land of Israel. In the church age, it's different. In the church age, we're commanded to go and take the gospel to the nations. And so there's a shift that takes place in the church age, but nevertheless, it's a fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. So all of this is part of a, our study of Abram. Now, what we see as we go through the process of Abram's life is this, proce- this growth process that takes place. And the core element, the core mechanism by which God matures us is under the heading of testing. This is the word that's used in, in James chapter 2, or James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when James outlines the fact that it is through testing that we have the opportunity to apply doctrine. And it's not the testing of faith in the sense of uh, trusting, but faith in the sense of what we believe, that when we encounter various trials or tests, it is for the purpose of testing our Doctrine, testing what we believe, to get us an opportunity to take what we have learned and then apply it into the day-to-day vicissitudes of life. And that comes under two categories, either tests of adversity, which are negative, or tests of prosperity. And what we see as we make the transition from Genesis 12 to Genesis 13 is that Abram has gone from his second test that we Outlined, which is a logistical grace test related to the promise of the land. I think it's important to watch the, the flow that's taking place here. 
related to the initial promises that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant proper isn't uh, cut, to use biblical literal terminology. The covenant isn't cut, or the contract isn't ratified until chapter 17. But it, the promise is initially made in chapter 12, and this, re, this relates to those three things that, that you're going to get sick and tired of hearing, land, seed, and blessing. Every time you hear Abrahamic covenant, you ought to think land, seed, blessing. And so the key element emphasized at this point in Abraham's life is the land, and as we'll see at the end of chapter 13, the seed is being uh, <clears throat> reiterated as well, the concept of descendants and the multiplicity of descendants. The promise to the land is given in verse 7. Now, when you think promise, and we're thinking in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth, we ought to think in terms of uh, testing, and testing, of course, brings up re- resolution of the testing or problem-solving devices, spiritual skills. And so when you think of promises, your mind ought to automatically go to faith rest drill. And so that's what's happening at the very core of this uh, testing process. And all testing ultimately is grounded on the faith rest drill. I don't care whether you're talking about basic uh, problem-solving devices or basic spiritual skills uh, such as grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, they're grounded on faith rest drill. Uh, personal sense of your eternal destiny, grounded on the faith rest drill. Everything in some sense is, is focusing on either a promise, a, a rationale or doctrinal conclusion in, in one way or another, and we'll get into that a little bit as we go on. So you have a promise given in verse 7. And I think that as, as I go through and read the Abrahamic uh, narrative from chapter 12 to chapter 20, 23 and 24, the thing that kept, keeps hitting me is the reiteration of these promises over and over again. And then the tests that come in Abraham's way are tests that are related to these promises that are just reiterated at, in one shape or another. So we have the promise in Genesis 15, or 12, 7, to your descendants I will give this land. And then immediately after that there is a famine in the land. So the land is where God geographically wanted Abraham, but that doesn't mean that when you are doing what God wants you to do when you're in fellowship, when you're doing everything right, that things aren't going to go wrong. There's going to be adversity testing in the midst of doing things right, walking with the Lord. That's the opportunity to apply doctrine to that situation. Well, we've already studied this this test related to uh, the land, and it's related to logistical grace. Is Abraham going to be able to rely upon God to supply his basic needs of, of uh, food and water in the midst of a famine in the land. And so this, of course, there's a, there's a subtext here. If you're reading, reading through this, you realize that, that at the very core of this, again, is the promise to the seed, that if Abraham dies, there won't be a seed, there won't be the worldwide blessing, so he is being tested as to whether or not he's going to rely on God's promise no matter what is happening experientially. And this is the challenge for us because our tendency is that we want to base our decision-making, 
and our values and our conclusions on the information we derive empirically from the environment around us. And what we'll see here is that that faith is just the opposite. Now, uh, our faith is a form of knowledge that is superior to that. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the uh, an orientation at the beginning. It's a chapter on faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is a form of knowledge that goes beyond empirical data. And this is important because in our modern world, people want to classify faith as some sort of lesser knowledge, some other form of of knowing things that's more subjective. It has to do with your psychological uh, orientation. Faith is just another psychological process. It isn't knowledge at all. And this is this is uh, evidence. I got an email from uh, a young woman and up at Preston who's going through uh, different kinds of testing as she is in her freshman year at the uh, University of Connecticut up there at UConn. It took us forever to realize that when they talked about UConn, it wasn't talking about a Northwest Territory in Canada, that UConn was the University of Connecticut. But she is now taking a psychology course, and the very first paragraph of the introduction to the course by her professor, the professor said, now we're studying psychology, it's a science, I don't want to hear any comments from anybody related to religion. Religion is not science. Root meaning of the word science is knowledge, so what she's saying is religion is not knowledge. That's the, that's the message that is constantly being, being uh, presented in the uh, university environment. It's a continuous uh, assault on faith. As Christians operating from a biblical worldview, we have to understand that faith is a more sure form of knowledge than that which we get from empiricism or rationalism. Because both empiricism, which is basing your, your thinking on what you see, what you feel, the, the sense of data that comes in, and rationalism, which is basing your understanding of reality on reason or thought, that both of these are limited because man is finite. And as soon as you see something, hear something, touch something, as soon as you have empirical data, your mind is instantly interpreting that data. It's never just raw data. Your, your mind is interpreting that, and the, there's a framework that is being imposed on that. And last week, when Charlie was here, he talked about that in terms of the cosmic system, that what the, the basic orientation of the sin nature in the cosmic system is to express this agenda that we want to reinterpret the world in terms of human uh, human autonomy or human independence. We want to define it the way, the way we want it to be as opposed to the way uh, God wants it. God has said that it is or God has created it. So faith becomes a form of knowledge that is more certain because the object of faith is the revelation of God. So when God says something and he has communicated and spoken objectively in his word, we can take that and rely upon it in a way that is more sure, more certain than anything that, 
that we discover on the basis of empiricism or rationalism, and, and at some point you've probably heard me critique both of those, but in terms of empiricism, you can always find there's always the chance that tomorrow you're going to discover a new piece of data that invalidates your interpretation of, of the previous 5,000 pieces of, of data. So there's never certainty when it comes to empiricism. Now, all of this has an important role in what's happening in Genesis 12 and 13. Genesis 12 was a picture of Abram's failure. He fails to trust God in the midst of the crisis, so he's going to create his own attempt to solve the problem. This is what we do when we're under the control of the sin nature. We're constantly developing strategies in order to survive in the current world without relying upon God. The basic orientation of the sin nature as, as arrogance is asserting independence from God. This goes all the way back to Satan's fall. This is one of the primary characteristics of the sin nature. Is I'm going to make life work on my terms. I'm going to trust God, but as soon as things get a little bit, as soon as things get a little bit uh, uh, difficult and there seems to be a real threat to my continued existence, then I'm going to figure out some way to, uh, uh, to, to bypass trusting God, and I'm going to make sure there's a safety net somewhere. And that's what, what Abraham does, and he goes down to Egypt, and as a result of going into carnality, a number of things happen in Egypt. And what you should notice is that, that while he is out of fellowship, while he is creating all kinds of problems for Pharaoh, for the for Pharaoh's harem, all these other difficulties develop. Abraham is personally still being blessed by God. Now, some people get the idea when they look at uh, someone who's out of fellowship. Uh, some, some, you look at some businessman, you look at some friend, some family member, and you know they're just as reversionistic or carnal as the day is long, and yet they seem to be prospering. They just keep making money. They, they keep buying a bigger house. They keep getting a better car. And people want to say, how in the world is God blessing them? You never know how this is fitting into the overall plan of God. Here's Abraham, and he goes down into uh, Egypt, and he's involved in all of this uh, carnality where he's operating independently from God, yet God uh, still prospers him. Prosper, whether you're prospering or not, has nothing to do with your own spiritual status. Get that down. Whether you're prospering or not has nothing to do with your own spiritual status. You can be walking consistently by the Holy Spirit, growing and advancing, and be unemployed, lose everything you own, go through incredible adversity, and it, has, it is not, does not mean that God's not happy with you. On the other hand, you can be in carnality and prosper. And this is what happens with Abraham, but it has ongoing consequences. I pointed out last time that while he's in Egypt, he increases the number of slaves that he has. And he picks up a young Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. Well, that's going to be another test in the future. And the consequences of his failure of that test reverberate down through history up to the present time. Another thing that happens is as he is prospering, we'll see in chapter 13, 
Not only does Abraham prosper, but Lot prospers. Lot's with him. We don't see Lot mentioned at all in chapter 12, but when we get into chapter 13, it's obvious that, that Lot was with him. And Lot prospers, and they come out of Egypt, and they are loaded. They've got gold and silver. They've got more servants. They've got more possessions. They have had an excellent business time down in Egypt. And they come back, and they are uh, both in a t- tremendous position of financial strength. But that creates the next test. And this is where we're going in chapter 13. Chapter 13 looks again at the whole issue of grace. We've got this interconnection between the faith rest drill, trusting God in relation to that promise that this land is yours and I'm giving it to you, that positional reality, and that gift of the land, of course, brings in the concept of grace. And what I want you to get out of this as we go through our study of Abraham is to kind of shake loose some of the cobwebs of your thinking in terms of how to use a problem-solving devices. Because so often people get the idea, well, it's either this problem-solving device or that one. It's one or the other. We compartmentalize them. And it's really a, a, they're, they're interconnected and they're interdependent. And we often use, use them in two or three different ways. It's a much more dynamic process than, than perhaps you realize. And that's what we see here. The, 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 main, the primary way in which Abraham is going to solve the problem here is through the use of, of what we would call grace orientation. But it is grounded on a certain understanding of doctrine, and it's grounded on the faith rest drill. He is trusting in the promise of God. And so he is using these basic skills to handle the di- difficulty that arises. Now, let you, what I want to do is give you an overview of the chapter so you know what's going on. It's 18 verses, and we ought to be able to hit the high points and cover everything uh, in one, one lesson. It starts, if you notice, with a note that Abraham comes back from Egypt, and he goes into the southern part of Israel, which is called the Negev. That's the Hebrew word for south. He just comes into the south. You know, we kind of understand that down here in the south. I don't know if they understand that up in the north, but down the south, we understand that the south is a geographical designation. So he comes into the south, and the first thing he does is he moves on up through the country to, to Bethel and Ai, and he builds an altar there, and he calls on the name of the Lord. After his uh, excursion into uh, self-reliance instead of God-reliance, God-dependence down in Egypt, he now comes back, and this is indicative of his rebound. He has uh, reoriented himself to his relationship with God, so he goes back up to where he had been before at Bethel, and he builds a, an altar there. If you look at the end of the chapter, read through the chapter, we read that Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and what? He built an altar there to the Lord. So what we see is that, the, that Moses, in writing this episode, brackets it with an altar building at the beginning and an altar building at the end, which tells you as a reader that you've got what's called an inclusio here. If, you're, if you were in the artillery, they, what happened was Moses bracketed the target. 
But he sets it up where you have an event at the beginning, an event at the end. Sometimes it's the same word at the beginning, word at the end. But it's showing that the author is including everything as one, one coherent whole, expressing one, uh, one idea. It's important to learn to read like that and understand these different kinds of literary devices that are out there. Uh, I remember when I was first out of college and teaching school, I bought a set of the great books of the Western world. And they have collected dust on my shelf pretty much ever since then. I know you all have probably had similar experience with encyclopedias or the great books or something like that. But with that, the, the, the salesman gave me a free copy of a book by Mortimer J. Adler, who was one of the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica great books series. And it's called How to Read a Book. And if you've never read that book, you ought to read that book, because then you'll finally learn how to read a book. And I read that and learned a lot, and lo and behold, to use a good biblical expression, two years later when I entered Dallas Seminary, in the first semester, every Dallas Seminary student has to take Howard Hendricks for Bible study methods, and you're required to read How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And as I go around the country and I talk to different people and people ask me questions and pastors ask me questions, what I discover is most people don't know how to read a book. And if you don't know how to read a book, you don't know how to read the Bible. And people ask me questions. I go, how in the world did you ever get that from that verse? Didn't you read the context? Didn't you ask what those words mean? Didn't you look anything up in a dictionary? How in the world did you jump from what that text says to whatever crazy thing you just mentioned? And you realize that most people don't know how to read. And so I recommend that, I've recommended that book for years that if you have a, especially a, a, a young person in high school or college, that's something they ought to have on their summer reading list is how to read a book and they will, it will greatly improve what they do when they, when they read a book. And you'll learn all kinds of things about uh, different types of literary devices that authors use to focus your attention on things. And we're really going to get into some of those when we get into Hebrews. I mean, the Bible is masterful literature. This is great literature, and great writers use great literary devices to communicate their ideas. And the Bible is no different. So there's a focal point here. In, in other words, another way to describe an inclusio, it's like building a frame around a picture so that you focus on a on on the focal point of the of the picture you don't really see the frame but you're you're honing in on something and the center of this whole episode is what takes place down in uh, verses uh, 7 or 6 through 8 that the land was not able to support them notice that the land seven times not counting the use of the land of Egypt because that refers to another piece of property. But other than that, seven times in these 18 verses, you have the word aretz, which is the Hebrew for land. And that ought to tell you something, that the Holy Spirit is putting the attention in this chapter on the land. And so Abram and Family come back, an entourage, all the servants, all the people who work for him come back from Egypt. And we're told in verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And what happens is they come back, and next thing you know, they're having a, a major uh, conflict because the land 
was not able to support them. Well, what land is this? It's the promised land. It is the land that God has promised to Abraham and that he's going to live there and his descendants will be what? This is reiterated at the end of the chapter. His descendants are going to be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky. Now think about this a minute. If your descendants are going to be that numerable, then why is it that the land can't support Lot and yourself? Maybe God's doing something here. And God is using this, once again, to divest, I think, divest himself of Lot. Lot's just dead weight. God is promising Abraham a special heir from his own loins. The seed of Abraham. It's not going to be Eliezer later on. It's not going to be Ishmael. And at the very beginning, God's just going to get rid of Lot so that there's no temptation on the part of Abraham to try to make Lot the heir. I mean, he's, he's blood relationship. He's his nephew. So he can't, it's not going to go that way. So that's part of what's going on here is God is, is coming in and doing a surgical strike to remove this option from Abraham's life. He wants to get Abraham to focus on him as well. The land was not able to support them. And then the next time that we see the mention of the word land is at the end of verse 7, that the Canaanites and Perizzites still lived in the land. Now, we know who the Canaanites are. They're the descendants of Ham's grandson, Canaan. But we don't know who the Perizzites are. This is the first time they're mentioned. And the word paraz in the Hebrew, P-A-R-A-Z, paraz is a word for village. That's the best that we can do. They're mentioned some 23 times in the New Testament. And the idea is that they were probably village dwellers, but it's certainly they had a certain ethnicity to them. So they're just part of the numerous people living in the land. But this note at the end of verse 7 is to make us realize that the reason the land can't support Abraham and his, his slaves and servants and employees and Lot and his entourage is because the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. It's crowded. And, of course, they were there first, so they probably have the best land. They have the best wells. They have the best uh, irrigation systems, the areas of agriculture. And so there is more of a competition for natural resources for, between Abraham and his, Abraham's people and Lot's people. But you have this conflict that arises. Now, think about this. I know this may not fit for anybody here, but I know it's true for some families. I never experienced this, but some of us don't have a real great time when our families get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas because of family strife. Maybe you have family members that aren't believers. Maybe you have family members that disagree with you politically. Maybe you have family members that operate on extreme carnality. and It's just not a, a pleasant scenario, and so there is strife in the family. And that's what's developing here, strife in the family. It's just a picture of uh, typical family dynamics gone sour. And so now there is a strife. And this word for strife that is used here is a fascinating word in the Hebrew. It looks like this. And in transliteration, you would pronounce that soft bait here like a V, and this I is like a long E, so you'd actually pronounce it something like that, reeve. And it has a, it has two meanings. 
The first meaning is a more general meaning of just having a, a quarrel, antagonism, argument between people. And the more technical meaning has to do with presenting a lawsuit, presenting a legal case where you are arguing against a particular position. Now, this is what's fascinating here is how the Holy Spirit, through the human author Moses, gives gives us foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future. Remember, Moses writes the Pentateuch. First five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy, writes these during the time of the wanderings in the wilderness. And he is going to read them for the first time. They'll be presented to the Jews as they get ready to enter into the land. So you have to read this sometimes as a Jew sitting in Moab on the verge of entering into the promised land. So you go back here and you read, and all of a sudden you come across this word, Reeve. Now, if you're a Jew a little later on, this even has even greater significance because the, the framework within which God operates with Israel is a covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And God establishes this contractual relationship uh, with Israel. That's what a covenant is. It's a legal contract. And they establish this legal contract with Israel, and then God is going to uh, discipline Israel. There, there's clauses within this contract that if you don't keep the contract, then then these are the consequences on you. And if you do keep the contract, then I will do these positive things for you. Well, what happens in the course of the history of Israel is you have uh, a breakdown and, and discipline, and the Jews disobey the covenant. And so God brings a lawsuit. See, they violated the contract, so God's going to take them to court. And he brings a lawsuit. And the the prosecuting attorney, so to speak, is the prophet. And the prophet is the one who comes and says, you violated the covenant. These are the, this is what the consequences are going to be. And this was called a reeve lawsuit. So this term that's used here in a more generic sense would resonate with the, um, with the Jews later on. And they would go back and they would think in terms of how Here's this legal term used in the, con- in the, in the whole um, context here of the Abrahamic covenant. And it also had uh, significance for the Jews who are sitting out there in, uh, in Moab because, remember, their fathers and mothers were the Exodus generation. And in Exodus 17 describes a test that the Exodus generation went through just after they, they left Egypt. And it was at a place called Meribah. And at Meribah, think about it. Listen to the word, Meribah. Reeve, right there in the middle. That R-I-B in the middle of Meribah is our word Reeve. And it was the place where they contested with God and they complained to God that he's not going to take care of us. Here he brought us out of Egypt. Uh, He's told us to, to leave, and now he's going to strand us in the, we're stranded in the desert with no water and no food. What was the issue? Logistical grace provision in the midst of the desert. And what did the Jews do? They're contesting 
with God. They are entering into a strife with God that he's not going to provide for them. And that's when Moses struck the rock and the water came forth and God in his grace supplies water for them. But this is an event that goes on down through Israel's history and lives in their memory that they argued with God at that particular point. So all of this gives us a background. So if you're a Jew and you're reading this, you're immediately connecting these words with what's happening here. This is a logistical test for Abraham. First test was famine. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough water. He decides to solve it himself. The second test brings about almost the same conditions. The land can't support the people. Who can't support all of Abram's people and all of Lot's people, so strife enters into the picture. Now, Abraham has a problem. It's a family problem. It's a problem because there's people in the family who can't get along with each other. They're, they're crea- it's creating a situation of anger, creating a situation of hostility, bitterness, resentment. Uh, people are calling each other names, and they, there's this charge and countercharge atmosphere going on here, which is all comes out of this, this word reeve. And Abraham uses the same term, and he says in verse 8, please let there be no strife between you and me, no reeve between you and me, no quarrels between us and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for why? What's his rationale? For we are brethren. For we are brethren. Now, when's the first time you run across this concept of brother in the Scripture? back with Cain and Abel. And there is this challenge from Cain to God saying, am I my brother's keeper? It's embedded in there is this basic concept of impersonal love. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You're to love your neighbor as yourself, as it's later expressed in the Mosaic Law. When it comes into the New Testament, it's ratcheted up a couple of notches. And we no longer are, as believers, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, our neighbor can be an unbeliever, and we're to love him like we love our own self, which sometimes is just pure selfishness. But Jesus changed it in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, and he said, you're to love one another, believers, members of the royal family of God, other brothers in Christ. You're to love one another. How? As I have loved you. See, the standard shifts. You go from the Old Testament, you love, one, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. You get into the church age, you're to love other believers as I have loved you. It gets really difficult. You can, you can almost love your neighbor as you love yourself, but when you have to love your neighbor who's a believer, who's a dirty, rotten, carnal, backstabbing uh, believer... And you have to love them as Christ loved them. Uh, now we're talking uh, a spiritual life that cannot be accomplished other than when you're walking by means of the Spirit. You just can't do it. So all of this is sort of embedded in this episode with, with uh, Abram. And Abram now is operating on what? He's operating on the promise. He's recognizing what undergirds this, the foundation for this, is he's trusting God's promise, that God's going to give him the land. This land is his positionally. When you are operating from a position of strength like Abraham is now operating, what can you do? You can easily apply the word because you're trusting God. That gives you the strength to do what is right because you're not out there trying to keep the land for yourself. 
That's God's job. Therefore, I can just relax and he can be generous. So it brings to bear a movement from the faith rest drill on into grace orientation. You see how we're looking at this problem. The problem is this family strife, this family problem, the argument, the bickering. It can be literal family members. It can be between you and somebody else in the body of Christ. It can be any kind of situation. But the solution is not to operate on arrogance, which which seeks to to control the situation to protect yourself. But it, instead of operating on arrogance, and the arrogant skills, remember, we start off with self-absorption, where we're focusing on what's, what's mine. And that le- you move from self-absorption to um, where you're, you're, you're just obsessed with the whole, the whole situation. So you move from self-absorption to self-obsession, self-justification, uh, and then you have self-deception, and then eventually self-deification. And this is the whole dynamic that happens when you're operating on the sin nature. It's self, 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 so I have to control it for me. If I don't protect myself, if I don't protect my assets, who will? So that's what's going on here. But Abraham realizes it's not his responsibility to protect his assets. It is God's responsibility. And so because God is taking care of the assets, he can then be generous with Lot in this situation. And so he operates on grace orientation and says, isn't the whole land before you? Look, at, look out here. And he takes them up on the heights and they see the whole of the land. They can, they can see for miles and miles. And he says, look at all of this, this land. Over here you have this uh, fertile area down to the south towards the Dead Sea, which wasn't dead at that time and was one of the most uh, fertile and prolific, productive uh, agricultural areas in the world. And in the passage we're going, going to see that's compared to the Garden of Eden. And you have all this land before you, and Abraham says, he doesn't say anything about, well, I'm going to pick the best because God gave it to me. He says, I'm going to offer you everything, and you take whatever you want. This is tremendous generosity. He says, in the whole land before you, please separate from me. And that indicates the principle that sometimes it's necessary under the concept of impersonal love to separate from another believer or a family member in order to avoid the antagonism and the resentment and the bitterness and the strife and the contention that is going on. So Abraham recognizes this. He's applying some wisdom from Scripture, and he says... Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, I'll take the left. I'm going to give you the opportunity to take the very best. And see, in verse 10, we, we have the picture of the carnal man. He's operating on, he's, on sight, not faith. The believer is to walk by means of faith and not by means of sight. Walking by means of sight is empiricism. It's, it's operating on the finite resources of the human intellect. But what we're to walk by is by means of faith, that is, by means of what is believed. So if you do an analysis of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, walking by faith, it's not walking by, it's not faith itself, it's not, we're not walking by 
by simply trusting. It's not faith in faith. You find that in, in, in that confusion today in so many churches and so many theologies. It's just faith. Just believe. Well, that's some sort of fatalism. What are you believing? It's the object of faith that's important. What are you believing? So uh, when you walk by faith, it's not by the act of trusting. It's what you're trusting in, the object of your faith. And the understood object of faith is the Word of God, not by sight. See, it's not really by the act of seeing. It's by what is seen, the object of empiricism. So what you're comparing there is two different mechanisms uh, for, for living your life. And the, the unbeliever or the carnal believer cannot operate on the basis of revelation. He's not going to put the revelation of God first. He's going to put his own thinking, his own limited experience first, and he's going to live his life based on that limitation. And it has radical consequences. And this is something that that I've understood for probably 30 years, but it's amazing how many Christians don't understand this, especially Christians who become a little more intellectual. What happens with Lot here is Lot looks out here on the basis of empiricism. And empiricism, at at, at its core, what's happening in his sin nature is he's saying reality is based on what I say it is and what it appears to be. It's based on the results of empiricism and rationalism. That's reality. So he looks out there and he sees this, this incredibly fertile valley, agriculturally prosperous, and he limits reality to what he sees because it looks prosperous, because it has a history of prosperity. What are we talking about here? We're talking about economics, aren't we? In an agricultural society, we're talking about the basics of you know, planting, going through the harvest cycle, and it's prosperous, it's green, and it is pictured in verse 10 as well-watered everywhere. So obviously a very different circumstance meteorologically than it is today as well as uh, geologically. Uh, well watered everywhere. This was, and the, Moses adds a note here to remind the reader that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. So the comparison, the analogy here is that it is like the garden of Eden. Lot's looking out here and says, This area down here around Sodom and Gomorrah is paradise. It's not just it's not just uh, uh, the San Fernando Valley or uh, the Rio Grande Valley or some other productive area agriculturally. This is this is like paradise. This is what it was like in the Garden of Eden. This has got to be the best place to go. His whole focus is on what he sees, and he's interpreting the data on the basis of empiricism, and what that does is it excludes, from the very beginning, it excludes the spiritual, moral factor. See, what what modern man wants to do is to say that spirituality and morality, that is what God says about reality and, and, and morality and spirituality, has nothing to do with economics. We're going to just just separate these things. We're going to compartmentalize our thinking so that economic thought takes place over here. And you can go out and you can analyze the economics of a culture. You can do uh, tremendous studies empirically. And it's true. You can come up with a lot of good, valid information from an empirical-based study of economics. But guess what? There are other dynamics 
that enter into economic prosperity, there are other dynamics than just the physical, the material uh, laws that you see derived from, from empiricism. Think about the Mosaic Law. God doesn't give, while there are certain economic principles that are embedded in the Mosaic Law, it's not an economic handbook. We don't have uh, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. We don't have uh, a Hayek's book on, uh, what was the name of that, the serfdom or slave nation, I forget the name of it, but we don't have any of these textbooks on economics. What we have is a, some guidelines. The importance of private property is certainly there, respect for private property. But at the end of the Mosaic Law, God says, if you're obedient, I will prosper you. If you're disobedient, then I am going to put you through a recession, depression. I'm going to take everything away from you. So that the primary causative element in the economics of Israel isn't economic theory or practice. It's spiritual and moral. It has to do with their obedience or disobedience to God because that ultimately places them within the core of reality. Reality is not how we define it on the basis of empiricism and rationalism. Reality is what it is because God created things a certain way. So, so we have to understand that reality isn't just physical. It isn't just material. It encompasses the whole realm of the immaterial, the unseen, the invisible, the spiritual, as well as the physical. So what happens with Lot is he's just focusing on the physical, and he chooses for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and he goes east, and they separated from each other. And then we learn that, verse 12, that Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom, and then we get the note from the Holy Spirit. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, you're like every Jew who read this the first time. They know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But what Moses is pointing out here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is there's another dynamic at work here that right now for God's sovereign purposes, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain are economically prosperous. It is fertile. The, the, the weather is just what you would want it to be. Everything is perfect, but there is another dynamic at work here, and that is a spiritual, moral dynamic, and as a result of that, they're going to be destroyed. And there's foreshadowing here in this particular verse as to what's going to happen. You can't go through life and compartmentalize the different areas of life. You can't say, well, I'm going to study literature or science or business or economics or politics or law, and I'm going to study that over here, and then on Sunday I'm going to study the Bible over here. The Bible is God's Word that addresses all aspects of reality. It defines reality for us, and it provides the information to interpret all rational uh, endeavors, all cognition, logic, uh, empirical studies, everything must ultimately be embedded within this reality that's defined by the Word of God so that the Word of God is the starting point of all knowledge. It almost sounds scriptural. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, that's the starting point. And so Lot is a picture here of the person with, who, who has rejected the revelation of God, 
He is operating on an autonomous interpretation of reality. And where that always leads when you're operating in autonomy from God is to arrogance. And in arrogance, what happens is that he is just taking advantage of someone as opposed to uh, something similar, grace orientation. Every time I think about grace orientation, I think about two great stories. And if you can understand these stories, then you can understand what grace is all about. And the first story involves George Meisinger. And George Meisinger was a student at Dallas Seminary and came down to Houston back in about 1965 or 66 as a, uh, I think he was doing his internship at Baraka. And he was uh, living at uh, Pastor Thiem's home while they went on vacation. And just as uh, Bob was leaving, he comes back to the front door and he says, George, you're going to be here for two weeks. You're going to need some money for food. Let me give you some money. Reached in his pocket, pulled out a wad of bills, peeled off a couple of hundreds. This was in 66. So a couple of hundreds back then was worth a little bit more than it is right now. And George says, no, 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 I can't take that. I can't accept that. And Bob looked him in the eye and says, if you don't learn to accept a gift, you will never understand grace. And I can't tell you how many people who are believers I've met over the years who just have a hard time accepting a gift. How would you accept salvation? See, that's a starting point. The other story involves Jim Myers. Back when uh, the library that existed at Baraka was, it was decided that they were going to get rid of the library. They used to have a great library. Those of you who were around there for a while remember that perhaps that there was a good library. They decided to get rid of the library. And so Jim has been pastoring up in Arkansas, and he was down in Houston. And, um, and Bob said, Jim, go in there and take anything you want. Anything you want. And Jim said, he told me one day, he said, you know, I went in there and I took a couple of dozen books. I wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole library. Now, you remember that, and that is what grace is all about. And this is what, what Abraham is exhibiting here. And so, Abraham operates on grace, a position of strength. Lot operates on self-centeredness, and he makes what appears to be a good decision on the surface But because it lacks spiritual perspicacity, it is a devastating decision. But God in his sovereignty is working in all of this because what he's doing is surgically removing Lot from Abraham's uh, frame of reference and and from having an influence on Abraham. And so after this happened, we get the conclusion in verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Now, what did Abraham do? Abraham said to Lot, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. Take whatever you want. Now, God says almost the same thing to Abraham. What Abraham was doing in grace orientation was imitating God. Remember, Abraham is in the image and likeness of God. We're all in the image and likeness of God. And as we're, when we're saved and we are being renewed according to the image of God, not in church age, it's according to the image of Christ, but you see this process in sanctification. What happens is the creature is to imitate the Creator. And that's exactly what 
happens with Abram. He is imitating God in his grace orientation. Abram has learned the lesson. He's learned the lesson from over in uh, from the last chapter. He's learned that God made him a promise. He's given him a gift. And because this is an unconditional gift, he doesn't have to worry about losing the gift. Therefore, because he has this, he's operating from this position of strength, he can then be generous towards Lot. He, it's not his responsibility to keep what he has. See, all the blessings we have, all the physical, material, financial blessings that each one of us has comes from God. It's not because you were so smart, so industrious, because you have a, a degree from this school or that school, and because you work for this company. All that can be taken away from you by the Lord tomorrow. It's a matter of recognizing that all that we have is from God. So grace orientation has certain elements to it, which I was hoping to get to tonight. Worked all day on the chart. We're not going to get there. We'll get there next week. There are certain elements in grace orientation. One of these is a recognition that God has already given us what we need. God is always going to supply what we need in terms of logistical grace. This frees us up then to be generous. has a number of other implications and elements to it. But that's what happens here. So God comes back. He reiterates the promise. And he expands on the promise a little bit. Verse 15, he says, For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Unconditional promise includes what two elements? Land and seed. We're not talking about blessing yet. Land and seed. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Now, Abraham ought to be thinking, Well, we couldn't even, this land here is so rotten, it couldn't even support Lot's people and my people. Now, God, you're going to give me so many, they're like the dust of the earth. How are they going to be supported? But he understands he's learned logistical grace, that God is going to take care of all of his basic basic needs. And then in verse 17, God says, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. In other words, start learning the dimensions of your positional reality. His positional reality is the Abrahamic covenant, promise the land, explore the land, claim it. He's never going to own any property in the land other than the cave at Machpelah, which is his grave. But according to Hebrews 11, he's always looking forward to that city that's built without hands. He's looking forward to it. He, will, he never owned it in his lifetime, but he will in the resurrection. I will make your, uh, the Lord says, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And, and, and verse 17, walk in the land. The application for us is that you've got a lot that's given to you positionally. I just spent uh, two weeks over in Kiev, three hours every morning teaching the spiritual life. And every time I go through this, and I generated these notes five years ago, and I teach the same thing every time I go over there, or every time I teach this course, but it hit, new things jump out at you every time you go through it. How crucial is it every time that Paul discusses the spiritual life, his starting point is always what happens to us at salvation in terms of positional blessings. Romans 6 through 8 is the centerpiece discussion in the New Testament for the spiritual life. Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, uh, Colossians 3 are other crucial chapters, other places it touches on it, but he's, the 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 
greatest exposition of sanctification is Romans 6 through 8. The first seven or eight verses in Romans 6 deal with positional grace blessings that come through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. What we need to do is really understand what that means. What are we given in terms of our position in Christ, the 39 things that are ours at the instant of salvation, those 39 irrevocable realities that are given to us at the instant of salvation. Everything flows out of that. If you understand who and what you are in Jesus Christ, everything dominoes. And so what God is saying is you need to understand the dimensions of my grace provision for you. Walk the land. Claim it in my name. This is yours. And that's exactly what Abraham is doing. That's part of the dynamic of going and building these altars is that he is making a, staking a claim, as it were, that this is the land that God has given to me. And it's also part of this is in there's a contrast with the, the, the pagan idolatry that's there. These same sites at, at Hebron, at, um, down in the Negev, at uh, Ai, and Bethel, and up, up north, these sites were also sites under the Canaanite pagan religion. And so what, what you see here is really a picture for us in terms of sanctification, that you have, at the time you're saved, you have all kinds of garbage in your soul. And you need to take that positional truth that, you're, that you learn from the Scripture and walk through the corridors of your thinking and challenge all of the human viewpoint. This is tearing down. This is uh, taking every thought captive for Christ. That's the picture. And if you grasp this as a dynamic picture from the Old Testament that, that is played out again and again and again through the Old Testament, it really helps you develop a concrete understanding or picture of what is happening in your own soul in terms of sanctification. Well, we'll come back and look at elements of grace orientation, application of grace orientation to problem solving uh, next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by what's happening in Abraham's life, the mechanics of spiritual growth and problem solving, to recognize once again all that you have given to us in terms of grace and that this puts us in a position of strength. It gives us a a position where we don't need to worry, be anxious, where we can operate on the basis of that grace and be gracious uh, to those around us and in the world around us, exhibiting your character in our own spiritual life. We pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of what the Holy Spirit teaches us through this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.